are delighted to have David Nasser today and next Sunday open the word for us. And uh, David and I became friends several years ago. I was uh, invited to be part of the Liberty University Convo at the time. He was shepherding uh, 14,000 plus students who hung on his every word. Uh, at nine years of age, he escaped uh, the Shah of Iran, if you will. Uh, and his story of, of leaving Islam to Christianity is one for another day. But without taking more of his time, would you welcome Dave Nasser as he opens the word for us this morning? Thanks, Pastor. Good morning. I hope you're doing well. Um, uh, man, what an honor to be uh, with you. And uh, as Pastor Michael said, um, we got to meet each other uh, when he was one of our guests at uh, Liberty University when I was a campus pastor there for convocation. And our students uh, genuinely just loved him. And uh, I'd been a fan of his for years as one of the great Bible teachers, uh, you know, in, in our, of our time right now. And so have always sat under his teaching before. And uh, recently to get to know him a little bit, you know, it, it's just been such a gift. And, and and Jason from down here, and like, like he was saying, and I have known each other for a long time as well. And it's just a, an honor to, to get to be a part of this great church where such great people uh, lead and serve. If, if you come here on Sunday to Sunday and are used to Michael Easley's preaching, uh, buckle up. This is the shallow end of the pool for the next two Sundays, all right? So this is kind of like you going to the kiddie pool and going, it's all right, all right? So uh, please lower your expectations. I mean, again, uh, you, you come here because you're a part of... Uh, a church body that sits week in, week out, and uh, one of the great pastors of America's teaching, you know, you. Uh, and so uh, at the same time, uh, that doesn't mean that there's not great application, you know, to these very simple truths that, that you're going to hear. And I know you know that already because every Sunday we sit uh, around here under Christie's great teaching. Can we thank her again? Can we just honor her? She did an incredible job. And that's not just for the kids. And that's for all of us uh, as well. If you have your Bible, if you would, get it out. And uh, we'll spend uh, the next two weeks in Matthew uh, 6. And as we go there, uh, those of you who are familiar with Scripture, when I say Matthew 6, instantly uh, come to think about the Sermon on, on the Mount. We, you think about the greatest sermon that was uh, ever preached with, uh, when Jesus uh, gives us the Beatitudes and gives us the, the, you know, the, the Lord's Prayer. And um, when I say Matthew 6, obviously uh, the Lord's Prayer comes to mind. I was looking it up the other day and it said that the Lord's Prayer is actually the most quoted place in all of Scripture. I was surprised by that. I thought it would be like John 3.16, but John 3.16 is a distant second to the Lord's Prayer in the sense that uh, a lot of movies quote the Lord's Prayer. A lot of people who don't even share our faith know the Lord's Prayer. And uh, how many of you know the Lord's Prayer by memory? How many of you know it? You don't have to look at a Bible or have someone put it on a piece of paper for you. Uh, and what's interesting, though, is that what we're going to do in the next two weeks is we're going to look uh, at what I like to call um, a flyby passage that people fast forward through typically to get to the Lord's Prayer uh, because it sits right in the shadow of it, which is Matthew 6, 5 through 8. And so typically right in the shadow of an iconic passage, uh, a really popular you know, set of passages uh, are a lot of neglected passages that people don't spend a lot of time on. Uh, but I think the next two weeks are definitely worth our while uh, to look at this. Uh, and um, as you're getting there, if you want to name the title or the series, the two-week series, um, you can call it with me pre-prayer. So it's not just because it's uh, in the back in corner of uh, as a tee up of the Lord's Prayer as, as a work of preparation, but because honestly, Jesus does in these four verses 
strong preparation work in the heart of his children. He's talking to the disciples. He's talking to believers. And as he's talking to the disciples, um, this is pretty, um, no other way to put it, destructive language that Jesus gives us. Right before he teaches them how in a model to pray in the Lord's Prayer, he's going to give us four verses on how not to pray. He's going to give us a whole lot of how not to before we get to the how to. And honestly, it's it's a work of preparation that can seem really hard to hear at times. You know, preparation uh, is code for um, a lot of times taking something down before you build something back up. Uh, I moved here about a year ago, like Pastor Michael was saying, and in the last year, uh, the house that we've been living in uh, here in Franklin has been in renovation mode. And honestly, I feel like we've taken more wood off of the place than put wood on. <laughs> And they don't give you any money for the wood you take off the place, right? They just charge you actually to put it somewhere. And I feel like we've taken more toilets out of a bathroom, you know, and that put one in. I feel like we've done more destruction than we've done construction. As a matter of fact, our builder told us, you know, it would be cheaper if we were just kind of building something new. But when you're doing renovation, it's twice the work because first you got to tear down all the old stuff that you want gone. Then after all those hours, we start to build back up to all the new things. And isn't that the way that the work of preparation normally is? Anybody here a dentist by chance? I asked in the 830 service, nobody lifted their hand, but anybody here at the 1030, a dentist? Do we have any dentists here? Good, we can talk about them. All right, dentists really need to come to church on Sundays because uh, they just need the encouragement. They need the edification. Honestly, it is the most depressing job to be a dentist. It's the most hated job in America. You know why? Because even though you might like your dentist and you might respect your dentist and you might even have a friend who's a dentist, I can tell you this, tomorrow that dentist will go to work and he might have seven people coming to see him during his day and none of them want to be there. No one wakes up and says, I cannot wait to go to the dentist today. This is amazing. I cannot wait to get those multiple shots just to get it numb enough for someone to drill down in my teeth. That's what a dentist does. A dentist does the hard work so many times of preparation. If a dentist looks at you and says, you need a root canal, what happens? Instantly, you get out your wallet. That's, that's hard work right there. And instantly, they begin to take all the decay out. There's so much destruction that has to happen before there's the construction of the new. Now, a bad dentist might think that's not very popular, and a bad dentist might just give you some medicine to numb the pain for a few minutes, but, and they might even give you, I don't know, something to patch up on top of the decay, but nobody wants that. Who wants a good dentist? And you want a good dentist because a good dentist is willing to do what has to be done, is willing to do what needs to be done, not necessarily what's most popular and feels the best to be done. And so preparation work is hard. When I was at Liberty, uh, we launched this new department, and we called it LU Send Now. And it was interesting. We had this one department called LU Send, and it was the sending arm of the school. That's where students would buy, uh, you know, for $3,500 a trip to go to Israel. And on spring break, we would send hundreds of students to Israel, or we'd send them to, you know, Rome to, to walk, like, you know, Paul's steps or whatever. But uh, we started a new department inside of that called LU Send Now. And that department was interesting but because uh, that department didn't cost the students anything financially. We took a lot of funding and we put it in one account, in one bucket, and we said, whenever 
there is a um, tragedy somewhere, wherever there's a, a tornado that rips through or a tsunami that comes our way, whenever somewhere in the world there's a need for us to be good Samaritans, we need to take some students that are mobilized and ready, the ones that have the GPA that has already been checking the box, the ones that already have their passport, passport work already embedded in our system, the one, we need to buy immediately airline tickets and send them to go and be a part of a place that needs the help. And we paid for those trips. And I can tell you, for a year and a half, every time you'd hear something uh, on, on TV, every time you'd hear uh, an immediate thing that had happened, we would, within the next 24 hours, mobilize, partner with someone like Samaritan's Purse, and send at least a dozen students our way. And it was interesting. I, I would read the evaluations of these students. And so many of them would say that they were disappointed in the trip, mainly because they were flying halfway across the world to cause havoc, they thought. They would say, like if they were to really be honest, I'm going to Louisiana where, you know, a tornado ripped through a place or, or levees broke or whatever, and it feels like I went to go help people and all I did was rip stuff out of a house and drag it to the street. All I did was rip carpet out. All I did was try to get black mold out of a place. It felt like we didn't do any construction. All we did was tear more stuff up than what was there in the first place. And it could have felt really good, right, if we'd have just given them a can of paint and said, look, there's a watermark line right here in this house. Why don't we just paint it and make it feel good? And for about two weeks, that would have looked good, except the black mold would have come through. And everybody knows you need the destructive work of taking down what shouldn't be there. It's not popular. It doesn't feel good. It's exhausting. Preparation is code for pain a lot of times. But it's needed if you're actually going to do construction that's worthwhile. And the reason I'm telling you all this is the next two weeks, Jesus is going to give us some language. And maybe that's why it's a flyby. Maybe that's why it's not so popular as the rest of the Lord's Prayer. But Jesus gives us destructive language because it's love talking. He loves us just the way that we are, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. And he's tearing down what needs to be taken away so he can build it right. And I'm just telling you, it's going to feel like, wow, is he coming on to me for what he's saying that I should stop doing and what I should stop doing and what I should stop doing? But it's love talking. He loves us and he wants us to do it right. And sometimes in order to be able to do it right, we got to first stop doing it wrong. Does that make sense? And that's where we're going to be for a couple of weeks. So Jesus begins to give us this in Matthew 6, 5. I love what he says in the very beginning. Ready? Matthew 6, 5. When. Stop right there. <laughs> now the presumption, if you're taking notes, is since Jesus is talking to believers there, he's talking to his disciples there, is that in that word when, that in the Christian life, that prayer, he's about to talk to us about prayer, is going to be a non-negotiable. It's not if you come into prayer. It's when you come into the discipline of prayer. When you begin to take place, to take part in this thing called prayer. The presumption from Jesus is that prayer is going to be a regular part of the diet of a person who says, I am a believer. That if you're a Christian... The prayer is not a suggestion. It's not a, a recommendation. Prayer is not something that's an alternate, you know, uh, thing that you can do or not do. It's not like there's a buffet of stuff and you can take this one and put it on your plate or not take this one and put it on your plate and neither one is okay. No, no, no. The presumption from Jesus is when, not if, as in if we are believers, we are going to be about the business of prayer. That's why Jesus says when, when. 
I love this definition of prayer, by the way, speaking of when, uh, from Martin Luther. Martin Luther says this. He says, prayer, this is a great definition. He says, prayer is dependent conversation with God. But then he says this, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be a human being without breathing. What he's saying is this, that prayer is the air in our spiritual lungs. And so anybody say amen, hallelujah. I know you go to Michael Easley's church. So this is like a prerequisite at this church. They hand out books about prayer, like stick tacks going around here. All right. So anybody with me, prayer is an essential in the Christian life. Amen. And I know everybody's going to say amen about that in this particular church. But the question isn't so much, do you believe in prayer? Do you think this is not controversial, but it's actually truth? The question isn't even, do you celebrate the idea of prayer? But the question is, do you actually pray? Do you actually pray? And I'm not talking about the same three prayers that we give three times a day right before a meal out of like just automatic mode. I'm talking about not even like whenever you're driving to something you're unprepared for and you're asking God for a Hail Mary pass show up. I'm talking about do you ever spend time in communion with God in dependent conversation with God. Beloved, look at me. In prayer, we get to have dependent conversation with God. Anybody believe that that's not just spiritual jargon? It's truth. We get to have a conversation with God. Are you with me on that? Amen. We get to have that. We get to have that. I was at the airport one time and um, I walked into this thing called the crown room, the Delta crown room. That's where people who uh, fly way too much get access to go to the, this room to get a free Diet Coke, you know, while you're kind of waiting between flights. And I walked out of the elevator and I walked into the main space of the crown room and I could feel like the air in the room was kind of weird. It was kind of eerily quiet. And I was like, what's going on? And this guy looked at me, he pointed to the middle of the room and everybody was standing there looking like grown men, you know, just standing there with their luggage, just looking at the middle of the room. And as soon as I looked, I saw this like African-American gentleman sitting in the room. And at first I thought that looks like Michael Jordan. And the guy looks at me and he goes, it's him. And I was like, that's Michael Jordan. And he was like, yeah. And everyone just staring at Michael Jordan, you know. And I thought, I don't want to just stare at Michael Jordan. I've got a few minutes. I want to go meet Michael Jordan. This is before September 11th when Iranians could do stuff like that at an airport. All right. So I just walk right over and I'm like, I put my hand literally on his shoulder and I'm like, excuse me, sir. And so I just like touched the hem of his garment or his jacket. Anyway, so I, I said, excuse me, Mr. Jordan. And he looked up at me and he go, I go, sir, you don't know me. And that, there's a duh. Huh? I go, you don't know me. I said, but sir, I know you. <laughs> And said, I just want to take a second to say that I watched you growing up. I watched number 23 stick your tongue out, defy gravity, fly over grown men and make them look like little boys. And you just dunked on them. You brought me so much joy. I got so many J's at my house. I got them in size eight and a half, nine and a half. I grew up on you. You're amazing. And he just looked at me and he goes, thank you. And he went right back into his magazine as if to say, now leave me alone. <laughs> And I walked away, and I was just punch drunk with joy. I was like, me and Michael Jordan just had a conversation. This is amazing. We didn't have a conversation. He basically went back to his Sky Mall magazine as if to say, go away before I call security. But, I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine if Michael Jordan had instead looked at me, Christy, and said, now, you know all about me, but what is your number? 
you know all about me, but I don't know a thing about you. I mean, you got my shoes, but do you even have kind of a sit down? What if Michael Jordan had asked me to sit down? What if Michael Jordan and I started talking? What if Michael Jordan started asking me questions and then I asked him deep questions? What if Michael Jordan and I talked for 45 minutes and then I looked and thought my flight was going to be late and I was like, you know what? I can get on standby later. And then he missed his flight. What if me and Michael Jordan sat there and we laughed and we cut up and we talked and I gave him some of the secrets that I would normally not share with a stranger, but I was no longer a stranger. We just spent two hours with each other. Three hours. What if Michael Jordan and I had all this time? If Michael Jordan and I were after three hours of hanging out, getting up, and if Michael Jordan said, hey man, here's my cell phone. The next time you're in Chicago, come by the house. Well, not his house because he's on his fourth divorce. Whatever. Hotel he's saying. Come by. If Michael Jordan and I were friends, can I just tell you this? If Michael Jordan and I had each other's cell phone numbers, I'd be bringing that up all the time. We could talk about whatever. It wouldn't even have to be about basketball. I would bring it up in conversation. We could be at the mall talking about fishing. And I'd be like, speaking of fishing, you know, a great fisherman is actually Michael Jordan, my friend. I would bring it up. If Michael Jordan and I were friends, if Michael Jordan called me, I don't care who I'm at lunch with, I, if the phone rang and it said MJ, I'd go, I got to get it. It's MJ. He's so needy. Anyway, so I would get, because if Michael Jordan and I could have conversations, if Michael Jordan, I mean, I, I know y'all are saying this, but I'm talking about a real celebrity here, not like a Nashville celebrity you see downtown Franklin who once in a while wrote one song that nobody even remembers and it's got Botox. I'm talking about a real celebrity. If Michael Jordan and I were friends, you would know about it and who would blame me? And I'm not talking about a has-been basketball player who's now selling Hanes underwear and has bad knees. I am talking about the God of this universe. The famous one wants to have a conversation with us and will never go, you're not important enough for me to pick up when you dial up. And never is in a rush. And we get to have that. That's not just theology in a book. You and I get to have dependent, as long as we need, whenever we need, conversation with God. Anybody believe to be that to be real? And if we really believe that, why would we set it to the side and never utilize it? And so the presumption from God is that we would be believers who believe in that. I think there are a lot of believers who don't believe in that. I think a lot of believers who believe Jesus is their Lord and Savior, but past the work of justification, dependency on justification, they don't need dependency in conversation with him. A lot of people who just believe in this idea of prayer and, and honestly have all kinds of robust theology and have all kinds of like, they, just, they, they spend more time reading John Piper books than just talking to God. And every single day, for as long as we need, God says, I'm here. Call to me, Scripture says, and I will answer you and give you great and unsearchable things you do not know. Wow. By the way, if that doesn't give us value, whatever will. If that doesn't give you worth, whatever will. Think of all the other relationships in this world where it's all built around performa. Did you produce? Because that's when the boss invites you to go play golf with him on the weekend. Think of all the different places in the neighborhood where everybody gets invited to the party and then you don't get invited to the party. Think of all the different places where it's based on did you, 
did you show up? Did you deliver? And if you deliver, you get invited to write the right songs with this songwriting group. If you deliver, you get to think of all the places where it's all built around your performance, you doing your part, and in God's economy, God doesn't invite us to conversation because we're great. He invites us to conversation because he's great. And he doesn't just know about our failures. He knows about our future failures. You don't even know about your future failures. And God knows about every failure you'll ever commit. He knows about every shortcoming, every time you just didn't really live up to bat, and he still wants to have conversation with us. Beloved, I don't know, if that's not, if that's a shallow end of the book, I don't know how much deeper you need to get. God wants to talk to you today. Like really, really have a conversation with you and me today. And we believe it, but we don't really just buy in. And Jesus says, when, when. He says, when you pray. He's presuming that's not a chore, it's a joy. And it's a gift that's given to us that we will partake of. He says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Now, let me just say this. I would presume, if I'm reading this for the first time, that what makes the person that Jesus is calling a hypocrite a hypocrite is the fact that they celebrate the idea of prayer, but yet they neglect it as a discipline. However, if you keep reading, what's interesting is that they're not neglecting prayer. They actually are in love with the idea of prayer. He says, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. He says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward in full. What is he saying? He's saying the problem isn't that they're hypocrites because they are not praying. He says the problem is that they're hypocrites because they love to pray. They're actually doing the work of prayer. They're actually in conversation with God, but it's actually not about doing prayer so that they can be with God. It's doing prayer, invested in prayer, in conversation with prayer, in the street corners, in the synagogue, in front of an assembly so they can be seen by others so that others will think much of them. They're doing the right thing, but they're doing the right thing for the wrong intent. If you're taking notes, two INT words today, all right? And then next week we'll pick up two more INT words. Intent matters. Intent matters. And the Jesus that is lovable enough to tell us about this is the Jesus who's saying, hey, when you pray, here's a destructive work, make sure that you're not praying. I'd rather you not pray then you pray and you pray strictly for the intent of making sure others see you pray so that they think much of you. Uh, is it ever wrong to do what is right? Is it ever wrong to do what's right? That's a weird question I know, but I'll, I'll just go ahead and answer it. It's wrong to do what is right when you're doing the right thing, but you're doing it for the wrong reason. It's wrong uh, to sponsor a child with Compassion International or World World Vision or whatever. It's wrong to do the right thing if you're doing the right thing, but you're doing it so that you can post about it on Instagram and everyone will think you're very, very generous. It's wrong 
to lift your hand in worship, like Jason was reminding us. Sometimes, like especially if the song says, with my hands lifted up, you're like, or if the song says, I stand, I stand in all of you, it's hard to sing that sitting down, all right? So, so like, it's, it's wrong to stand up. It's wrong to lift your hand if you're doing it so others around you think, oh, you're so invested and so engaged. Look how godly you are. It's, it's not wrong to have a Bible study unless you're like on your phone that morning and then you hear your husband's getting out of the shower and all of a sudden you grab your Beth Moore book and you're like, when he comes out, look, I'm having my Bible. It's wrong to do the right thing when you're doing the right thing, but you're doing it for the wrong reason. And Jesus is saying intent matters. What's weird is you and I, you and I can't ultimately look at someone's intent, right? But God does. Every single thing that we do, God sees as a complete transparency and doesn't only see the action that's in the public, but he sees the intent that's in the private. And it's incredible that Jesus loves us enough, not just in prayer, by the way, but in fasting and giving and all these things, all over the Beatitudes, reminding us that ultimately, ultimately the people that seem to have bothered them the most in the greatest sermon ever are not the people that are not doing religious activity, but are about the religious activity so that they look religious. It's an incredible moment in Scripture. I am... Um, I remember one time we um, built this house and uh, and we um, had a basement in the house and um, the stairs that went from the main floor to the basement um, created a closet space down in the basement and I don't know if you have a basement in your home but if you if you go down and you're standing in the basement and, and you go right under where the staircase is you kind of get a triangle type you know closet and so it's like a really tall closet like where the stairs are and when you open the door if you build it right under the staircase you can literally like see the closet go all the way down to nothing you know as the stairs are coming down and so we had this weird awkward closet that was there and um, we we when we were building it my wife had this idea she said look um, when you walk in because you're standing you're instantly like forced to kind of go like physically go down so she said why don't we turn that into a prayer closet that way you kind of come in and you're on bended knee and, and uh, I thought it was a great idea. And, and so we, we bought like shaggy carpet, you know, for that one space because it wasn't very big. And, and we, we kind of put really big, thick, shaggy carpet there. And at the very end of it, uh, we bought this tiny little desk and we put it there and we put a Bible there and, and we put a pillow in there. And we thought, you know, like we're going to spend a lot of time in prayer. And so you're going to be on bended knee. So you're going to want a, a pillow for that, you know, and, and we put it there and, and we moved into our home. And, and um, about three months after we were in our home, one day. A friend of mine called me, and he was like, hey, um, I'm coming through town today. Uh, he was a musician. He said, I'm coming through town today, and I'm going to be in Birmingham right around lunchtime, and I was wondering if you want to have lunch. I was like, man, I'd, I'd, love, I'd love to have, you know, have lunch with you. He said, I want to see the new house. He goes, you know, we've been talking about your new house because we've been building it for like nine months. He goes, can I come see it? And I was like, yeah, dude, come see the house. And, and uh, he said, okay. He goes, well, uh, the bus will stop here. And I said, no, why don't you just have the bus come on the way, all the way down and the whole band can come. He goes, no, dude, there's 12 of us. I was like, no, 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 have everybody come over. And he was like, are you sure? And I was like, dude, I'm the man of this house. I don't need to ask permission. So I tell him, come on over, 12 people. He's like, we'll be there in 45 minutes. 
So I get off the phone. I call my wife. I mean, I walk up, and I'm like, hey, baby. I just invited 12 people. And she was so gracious. She was like, sure. She was like, but I got to go get some food for 12 people, you know. And so she runs to the grocery store. And the house was kind of clean, but I thought I'll pick up, you know, since they're going to want to tour the house. And I'm cleaning up all the different rooms a little bit here and there, you know. And, and I go downstairs, and it was pretty clean. And I had to, like, tidy up a few things here and there. And I opened up the prayer closet, and I realized that for the three months that we'd owned this house, we'd pretty much not opened the door since the day we moved in. The, the, the carpet, uh, the, the vacuum cleaner marks were on the carpet from like the day we'd moved in, and the Bible was at the end, and the pillow was all fluffy, and I thought, my friend's going to get a tour, and when he walks in and he opens up this prayer closet, he's going to see the carpet marks from the vacuum cleaner, and he's going to see this pillow's never been used, and he's going to see the, he's going to think I'm unspiritual, and, and you know, and, and so I walked in, I started messing up the carpet, you know, and I, and I walked over and I started kicking two little like what looked like bended knee things into the pillow. And I walked over to the Bible and I opened it up to Colossians because Colossians felt robust, you know. And I, and I went there and I stood back and I looked at the prayer closet and I thought, now that looks like the prayer closet of a man of God. <laughs> and as I was walking up stairs, I felt like the Holy Spirit was like, you beloved little idiot. <laughs> Here's the sad thing. Here's the sad thing. You've reduced this down to trying to impress somebody. And here's the sad thing. You might just be successful. That's what Jesus says. He says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites because they love to stand in the synagogue and in the street corners so that they may be seen by men. And then he says, I tell you, truly, they have received their reward. They're getting what they want. He's not saying they're going to be busted because I'm going to expose them for their intent. Instead, he says, I'm going to give them over to what they want. They want to settle for so much less. Here you go. You want everybody to think you're amazingly godly on Instagram. Here you go. When you could have so much more. It's like C.S. Lewis says, so many people, so many people just settle for the, for the slop and the mud puddle when the ocean is available to them. And we settle for less. And Jesus is telling us, why would you settle for less. Anybody ever do this? Anybody here ever, um, you're in a prayer circle with somebody and you're holding hands or you're just praying because it's post-COVID, you're just praying, you're not holding hands, all right? So you're just, uh, you're just praying. And um, like three people into the prayer circle, somebody says something really profound, like something that you never heard before and you're like in the back of your mind while you're praying. Anybody have somebody say something and then you're in the back of your mind, you're like, that is really good. Man, I've, like, I've thought I've heard all the greatest hits of what people say and Father God, fill in the blank. That's really good. Everybody ever go, in the back of your mind, you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that in my spiritual back pocket. And the next time I'm in another prayer circle with other people, excluding the person who just brought that to the table, I'm going to drop that like it's hot. Anybody ever do that? <laughs> come on, anybody? Come on. Anybody ever say stuff in a prayer circle? Come on, anybody? Thank you, ma'am, for confessing. I've never done that, but I've never. But thank you for, <laughs> thank you for your honesty. No, of course. Come on. You're the only one honest enough to say, I have pretended. I have done the right thing. Come on, anybody else? And the beauty of that is that God's not upset with you today if that's you. 
God's going, I love you just the way that you are, but I love you, and apparently I believe more in you than you believe in yourself. I think you're capable of so much more. And Jesus is addressing intent. He's about to give them the Lord's Prayer, but he says, but before I tell you all the do's, make sure that you don't just say, our Father who art in heaven. Maybe you don't just say the right stuff for the wrong intent, because intent matters. And that's in everything. Intent matters. If you're about saying the right thing to your dad on Father's Day, just so your father will do something for you. If you, I'd rather not hear kind things from my children than hear things for the wrong intent. Because you know what's, that's not honor when your children say stuff they don't really mean. That's dishonor. Because flattery is just another way of, of saying things just to try to work somebody. Amen? And so anybody here is a dad in this room that says, I'd rather my children not say I love you than fill a card full of things they don't mean just because they're trying to work me. Anybody say, I'd rather not get a card than get one filled with things that are just, anybody? Why would God's standard be lower than yours? (laughs) You're a father made in, in the image of a father. And the ultimate father actually sees our intent. So what God is saying is, when we pray, I'm not looking just for a card filled with things where I'm trying to work God up into a corner. God, these are the things I said. God's kind of (laughs) smart. And and we can fool one another, but God looks at that and says, why would you settle for less when there's so much more? So intent matters. Second verse. Matthew 6, 6. But when you pray, he says, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And so if the first point is ultimately about intent, the second point is ultimately about intentionality because intentionality matters as well. And what he's saying is this, if this truly is a passion, if this truly is a conviction, if this truly is a necessity in our lives, then make sure that we carve out with intention everything that we need. Because because here's the thing, when, when, when we let the day make its own choices, it always chooses to edge out the things of the Spirit. I don't know what your week looks like next week. Christy, I don't know what your week looks like this week, but I can tell you this, it will get completely filled. I don't know what your week looks like, but I can tell you this, left on its own, other people will flat fill your week for you. (laughs) And other things will flat fill your week for you. And so this is really about the reality of, I'm going to, if if this is really a value to me, I'm going to make it a non-negotiable in my week. I'm going to make it a non-negotiable in my time. And so I'm going I'm to be intentionally about creating that. It doesn't have to be a physical closet. It could be even, my, my favorite story in, in illustrating all of this is actually Jonathan Edwards' wife, Sarah Edwards, the, the great pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards. Um, he and his wife had 11 children, 11 children. And they lived in a small house, and, um, and then she raised all the kids. They didn't have a maid, and the other kids helped raise the other kids, but she was full-time mom. Can you imagine 11 kids as a mother? And more and more of those children, when they wrote about their mother, wrote about their favorite me- memory of their mother being her apron 
her apron, her skirt apron, being over her head. And they called it her inner closet of prayer. And those children remember, it was a legacy of time that they remember. They remember that their mother would be so busy, she was too busy not to pray. She was so pulled at every single day that she needed this, this gift given to her by God. And the children remember as a legacy so many days when mom would be so busy that she would ultimately come to a moment where she would like take the apron skirt and pull it over her head. And the kids knew when mama's got her apron over her head, you leave mama alone. She's with Jesus. <laughs> She's talking to God. And so you might not be afforded an, a beautiful Adirondack chair under a beautiful shaded magnolia there in Franklin drinking bougie coffee. All right, you might not be afforded that. You might just be at a place in your life where you're going, the only time I have is the 11 minutes where I leave the house and I drive to work. But that has to become intentional. My wife is here, and I can tell you that we've been in this new house, and for about nine months now, there's a little blue velvet chair we got at the Restoration Hardware Outlet because it's kind of halfway broken, and, you know, and it's wonky. And I can tell you that that little circle, that little place that she sits is filled with little prayer journals and her devotion time. And I know in the morning when she wakes up, she finds her way there, and that is her inner closet. Now, not everybody gets a little blue chair to sit in. But everybody can find a place to go where you go, God, this is where I go to meet with you. And it's intentional and it is a priority and I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it the non-negotiable of my time. I, I usually like to quote um, dead reform guys. All right. But uh, I'll give you a, uh, a living. Um, I think he's Mormon. Stephen Covey from Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Stephen Covey says this. He says the key the key is not to prioritize your schedule. The key is not to prioritize your schedule, but to schedule your priorities. And so the truth of that is that we're already experts at that. You're going to prioritize, right? Not just your schedule, but you're going to take your priorities and put them in because they're non-negotiables for you. You're going to this week make sure, if you're really into money, that you're checking your 401k as it's taking a roller coaster ride. You're going to make sure you check in with the things that really are valuable to us. So what does it look like for us to say, I don't just want the intent of my prayer life to be pure, but I want there to be intentionality to where I say this week, this week, I get to have conversation with God. And because I get to have conversation with God, it's not I have to, I get to. I'm going to make sure that it's carved out in my time. Uh, here's what I've learned. I just don't have enough time. I don't have enough time. I'm constantly feeling like I disappoint a lot of people because I don't give them the time that they need. Anybody else? There's constantly like people who, who need more and do this. And, and, and what I've learned is that the best way to serve all the other people who, who want time is for me to be spiritually at a place where when I'm there, I can be present and I can be whole and I can be at a place where I'm, I'm more available to them. And I'm, I'm telling you that to be very honest with you to say that this passage is a reminder that when I spend time with God, it's actually like, I guess it's Sarah Edwards, the mama with the skirt over thinking there are 11 apps that are going to be running wild all day. I'm going to need to make sure I plug in and charge. And so that's why it's a gift and not a chore. Amen? And so can I get you just wherever you are just to bow your heads with me in prayer? 
and there's nothing revolutionary here. Like, we're not reading anything today that um, anybody didn't know. No one's hearing me say this stuff and going, I had no idea God cared about intent. <laughs> or I didn't know God wanted this to be a priority in my life. There's nothing new here. The question is, is it, is it actually truthful in our lives? Does it actually find itself applica applicated in our lives next Tuesday, next Thursday. And so anybody here say, I, I, I'm honest enough to say, and it feels a little bit like a root canal, but it's love talking from the Spirit of God. And, the, and I love that Jesus is honest enough with me to tell me that. By the way, he's talking to his most intimate people. He's talking to his disciples. The very people that saw him model this in his own life. And so anybody here, just say with, with your heads bowed just for a second, just a little spiritual inventory here. Um, I, I just sense this morning that there's some stuff going on in there where the intent of my heart needs to be realigned. Or I, I sense that the priority of time with God, not getting from God, but getting with God, has just taking a second seat and I see today that I'm not where I need to be and making the priority of just getting to have communion with God and conversation with him oh, in either one of those if you sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit on you as, as a believer will you just lift your hand and just wave it at me just for a second and put it back down okay wow okay can I just tell you if you lifted your hand God's not upset with you <laughs> He is not disappointed in you. It's been said two times. Let's just say it for the third. He loves you just the way that you are. He loves you too much to leave you this way. And, and the remedy to this is not more work or more worry. The remedy to this is worship and trust. It's coming to God and saying, God, that's why I came on a Sunday, not just to hear a few songs, hear a sermon, and walk out of here not different. I came and said, I'm soft and I'm porous and I'm moldable. Holy Spirit, one in my life needs tomorrow to grow. And I just want to grow in saying, I want to begin to think about the intent and I want to begin to be more intentional. Holy Spirit, help me. God's not going to give you right now a big syringe full of, I want to read my Bible, Sarah. That's not how that works in the spiritual life. Discipline is like a spiritual treadmill sometimes. It never feels good to sweat it out. It's just, what do you want more? What do you want more? And so in this moment, if you just lifted your hand, just know God loves you. He's pleased with you. Here's the beauty of it. The, the remedy to this God is God wants to be with you. And so will you ask God to give you an inner closet? Can I just tell you, that's the work of revival. Show me any reviving moment in history. Show me any awakening. Show me any church that said we experienced revival. Show me, any, show me anywhere where that happened in a public manifestation. And I can show you the boiler room, the private room of bended knees. And that's where it all started. So if you're looking for a reviving work in your life, it begins with... Just a private moment with God of saying, God, I need this today. Just come to him and say, Lord, um, let my drive to work, let my last few minutes at night, 
the afternoon 20 minutes that I have that I've just filled with this little podcast, whatever it is, God, let, let those things leave so that I can make the time for you. Help me, Lord, to grow out of like needing others to see me be spiritual. Holy Spirit, we love you. We thank you for this. Jesus, you're the great model and the great aim for this. Thank you that you never ask us to be about great intent and intentionality without modeling it yourself. We look to you as the, the author and the perfecter of this. Can we stand together? No, let's just worship for just a minute.